welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. My guest today is Jennifer Chen. Jen is a freelance journalist who's written numerous print and online pieces for The New York Times, Oprah Magazine, and many other publications. And over the past year, she's written four different articles on the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes in America since the start of the pandemic. This isn't Jen's first time on the show. If you're an avid JNS listener, you'll know that she came on the podcast last summer to discuss attacks that were already taking place then against the Asian American Pacific Islander community. And I wanted to have her back on the show today to discuss what's changed and what hasn't over the past year and how people are coping and responding to what's going on. This is a really interesting conversation. It's tough at times. Um, We also discuss the impact of the Atlanta shootings, why hate crimes are so hard to prosecute, and the complexities of race and racism in America. But it's a really good chat. Jen just has a really good way of being able to speak about these things, and it was a real pleasure to have her back on the show today. So here is my conversation with Jennifer Chen. Jennifer Chen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Jen, it's obviously not your first time on the podcast. You were on last summer, and I wanted to have you on again to speak a little bit more about your recent journalism on anti-Asian hate crimes. And unfortunately, this isn't a new topic that you've been covering. When you were on last summer, you had just written a story about anti-Asian hate, and you wrote a previous story around this time last year also on anti-Asian hate starting uh, around the time that the pandemic started. So um, I know it's been a really difficult number of weeks and a a difficult year. Um, So I really appreciate you coming back on to to talk about some of these issues and about your journalism about it, which has been very meaningful, I know, for me to see. And I imagine for many of your readers and, uh, you know, friends and just uh, people who are who are coming across your words. And I was really struck when you published this last story. You had a tweet that went quite viral. Mm -hmm. And uh, you said, I'm writing my third story about anti-Asian hate crimes. Last year, I wrote that King flu is racist and people said it's not real racism. A year later, I am mad. Words have power and I'm using every word I've got. So really powerful tweet. I'm not surprised that it got as much attention as it did, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to just start there and ask how has the issue of anti-Asian hate changed or not changed since you first started covering the topic and what compelled you to write the article? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, that that tweet that you mentioned, I didn't think anyone was listening. I mean, I've, I mean, it's been a year plus, and I was really shocked how viral it went. Um, So the first story I told you about was, um, my editor assigned it to me. And it was a lot of people responding to the headline saying that Kung flu and Chinese virus or China virus is racist and a lot of people. So when I shared it on Facebook, people shared it on their own Facebook profiles. And then I would see everyone's comments. And 
a lot of family members or friends of my friends were saying it's not racist, it's not real racism, you don't like it because Trump said it. It was very much dismissive. And I think my friends, my immediate community were, were like, thank you for saying this. Yes. And then the piece that you and I talked about in July of last year was me actually approaching my editor and saying, it's still happening. It's still going up. Um, and what can people do if they, they witness something or if they unfortunately are the um, recipient of an attack? And then this third piece actually came from my editor. She said, you know, you've covered it last year. Can we do a new piece? Um, and I said, yeah. And then when that tweet, I was working on it, we, she gave it to me on a Friday. Our intention was to get it up on Tuesday. I tweeted that tweet on a Monday and it went so viral that my editor, I sh showed it to her and she's like, oh my goodness. And I said, I think I need to get this story done so that people can start reading it and sharing it. Um, so I, <laughs> we worked in Google Docs because they're in, on the East Coast and I'm in the West Coast and we just worked on it. I mean, I could see their live edits and I just knew that I was like, I want to get this done as quickly as possible. Um, because I think people are talking about this and it, it needs to be discussed. Um, so I've seen like definitely the third piece is my most read. I think the first one was people, a lot of people didn't actually read it. I think my friends read it <laughs> and I think people read the headline and, and were like, well, I'm not racist. I don't, you know, I just think it's, that's where it originated from. So that's what we have to call it. Like Spanish flu, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I feel like that really, I can see the change in response to it. And the, this time period when your editor came back to, um, and said, you know, let's, let's do another piece on this. To me, there, there was starting to be a bit more coverage of these kinds of hate crimes and these kinds of attacks. Like, um, I really think for the first time, just outside of, um, you know, being someone who's been trying to keep up with it, I really heard it more in the national narrative a little bit more. So what, what is and what, what was and what is the situation right now? Like, what is the extent of these kinds of hate crimes that they are rightly now getting the attention that they've needed for quite a while? Well, you're right. I think there is more national attention. I've seen it covered in the New York Times and, and beyond. Um, it's a more of a national conversation than it was a year ago. Um, they're still going up. I mean, the last count that I got from recording to stop AAPI hate, I think it was about 3,800 cases since last year. Um, and these are reported cases, self-reported cases. So it could be even higher than that. Um, I think that, I think honestly, sadly, I think the reason it's getting more attention is that celebrities got on board, Asian American celebrities. I think um, people use their social media um, wisely. And if they have a big audience that crosses outside of the Asian American Pacific Islander community, I think they were able to get that word out. Um, and I, I'm grateful to people who have a big platform who are using it. I think that's amazing use of social media. And the other thing, sadly, is I think because elderly people were being hurt and it was recorded and people saw photos um, or videos, I think that really 
hit home how far we've gotten if we're able to hurt 70, 80 year old, 90 year old men and women. Um, and so the other thing too, is people would take photos of the perpetrator and you know try to find them. And so I think that just really amplified it because I don't think people saw photos. I don't think anybody knew other than when I first started covering it, it was a lot of local news, like mm -hmm. very local New York stations or San Francisco Chronicle. And not that San Francisco Chronicle is a small paper. It just, I don't think it crossed um, the boundaries um, back then. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I know for my myself with other issues, mm -hmm. I know how important it is to have those images out there and seen, but I know it can also be very emotionally difficult to see those images over and over again. Mm -hmm. So how has this time been for you personally and especially with the attacks on elders? I know you reflected a little bit on your grandmother in one of your pieces and I was wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, I um, that piece, that I, the last piece I wrote, um, I did the framework of it on Friday and I said on Monday, I'm gonna look at the headlines, look at the photos. I knew that I was like, I need, I need to be mentioning them and looking at them and seeing what actually happened, but I don't think I could handle it while I'm trying to write this draft. So what, what I tend to do as a writer is I'm like, I have the framework and then I put in sort of placeholders of like insert statistics, um, insert this, here's headlines um, and link to studies and all that stuff. And when I got to it on Monday, that's when I wrote that tweet because I looked at um, multiple photos, multiple stories, and I felt really angry that I, I think we've been, I think the AAPI community has been talking about it for a year and to see, you know, our grandmothers, our grandfathers, and I say that, you know, sort of blanket statement, but to see them get hurt in that way, it felt like a total violation of community of humanity um and in particular you know i i was interviewed on npr's weekend edition and i had said i had written this essay about my grandmother for the new york times and i am grateful she's not here because she's 90 um and i don't have to worry about her walking alone on the street that's what she loved doing was walking by herself in the neighborhood and i don't have to worry about her and i hate mm. feeling that way because i would much prefer she was here and meeting her grandchildren, but I also am like, I don't have to worry and other people do and that's not fair. Um, I, I think what really angered me on seeing the videos and the photos and the headlines and reading what had happened, I thought, where are we in society that we've, these, these incidents are happening and no one's stepping in, no one's you know, trying to help that feels really scary to me. Um, and I have seen, you know, beautiful acts of like, I don't know if you've heard of Compassion in Oakland that they mm -hmm. started, this young man started um, a, like a walking system so that people could sign up to walk with elders so they're not alone, which I think is beautiful, but it, it, ha it would have to be replicated in like every major city, which I hope we don't have to get to that point. Um, but yeah, it, it disturbs me. I mean, it's particularly the main st statistics I think about is the targets are elderly people, Asian women, 
and unfortunately children. And I think there might be a feeling of they're vulnerable and easy, but it's still, it feels really scary that, that that's where the targets are going. And, and that feels really wrong to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And as beautiful as you said, as things like the Compassion Project are, and some, you know, people shouldn't have to feel afraid to go outside and go for a walk or go get their groceries and stuff. Like you shouldn't need to have an escort with you to feel safe going outside. And that's just, yeah. um, that's a sad thing, even though it was a very kind response from that community. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a minute ago about a sense of uh, how the Asian American community has, you know, has been following this all year, um, the sense of especially attention to elders. But I guess, I, as I think we've talked about a little bit before, the Asian American community itself is obviously extremely diverse. So what has this moment in time meant for Asian American identity? Hmm. You know, it's a good question. I I think it's a conversation that's a lot of writers have been writing about, uh, their journalists have been writing about. I I can only speak for myself in that I think um, I am using the power that I can, but I think the racism that we're experiencing is heightened by what was said at the start of the pandemic. But I, do, I think it's always casually been in our lives. I mean, I, I haven't met an Asian American who has told, I mean, almost all of us have a go back to China story, even though I'm not ethnically Chinese, <laughs> almost everybody has that story or where are you really from? It's almost like we're treated as we are not Americans, even though I was born here, I'm still viewed as Asian first. Um, I think I think unfortunately the pandemic and the early language around it connected us to it. And then on top of which I don't, I think it's bringing out sort of an ugly side of Asian American racism where we've always been other. And so it seems easier to um, pinpoint us and blame. Um, And the last thing I'll say on that too, is that I remember my, the piece that I wrote in July I listened to a Trump rally because I wanted to have the exact date and what he said. Um, and he, when he said Kung flu, everybody at the rally cheered. And that felt really bone chilling to me because I thought, wow, June, 2020, this is where we're at. And it's not gonna get better because the pandemic isn't going away. So as more people lose jobs, um, the economy continues to tank, people are stuck at home with their children or whatnot it's only gonna fuel that anger. It's just like putting a match onto an already big bonfire. Um, so that that's what feels hard is that I think we've all experienced racism for a long time. It's just, it got really, really um, compacted because of the connections that were made early on in the pandemic, the in- incorrect connections that were made in the beginning. Yeah, and I, I did want to ask you about that because obviously, you know, as, as you said, you, you wrote very specifically about the racist implications of those terms. Now that Trump is out of office and off of Twitter, mm-hmm. we're obviously still seeing these attacks at the same rates, if, if not more. And so I was wondering, do you think Trump like 
unleashed something that now has just taken on a life of its own? Or was there something there previous or other factors at, at play? Or mm -hmm. is this, you know, people are looking for someone to blame kind of thing? Like, um, I guess he obviously tapped into something there, but I wonder how you see that relationship. You know, I, I, I do think that his words and his rhetoric obviously didn't help. And I think January 6th in America was very clear that there's a lot of people who are not happy with our current administration and then the change in power. Um, I think I can see why a lot of Americans are angry right now. I feel angry. And um, I something I said to my daughters, because I've talked to them very distilled down what is happening and what I've been writing about, because I do want them to be aware um, and I don't, I don't show them any videos or photos, but I had said, you know, people are angry and they're blaming us because we look like the people they think brought the virus here. Um, and my daughters were like, why are they angry? Why are they hurting people? And I said, you know, when somebody's angry, sometimes they don't know what to do with their anger other than blame someone else or hurt someone else physically or, or you know, with words. And my daughters were really confused and they're like, well, what if you're, if you're angry, can't you like go draw or meditate or, I mean, that's what we've worked on with them is like, if they're really angry to express it, but then you find a way to calm down. That's not hitting someone or yelling at someone. And I said, you know, that's a great idea, but I don't think most people have those tools. And, you know, we've been working with you on it, but there's grownups who've never used that. And so I understand it sounds it sounds strange I still understand and I think I think there's a lot of people who are still upset that he's not in office and I think um, I think that he left a lot of roots in a very ugly tree and I think those roots are trying to take hold I mean if I feel like yeah, we, we kind of got rid of the main, <laughs> the main source, but there's, I mean, I think four years of that kind of rhetoric and blame and name calling, um, I think is why we're still here. I want a slightly tangential question. As you know, I work on foreign policy and international relations, and there's been a couple of pieces written in the last week or two saying that the current administration's approach to China being more tough on China in terms of foreign policy is also kind of contributing to anti-Asian or anti-Chinese sentiment in the United States, even though it's a very, you know, very different than, than Trump or these kind of uh, direct, uh, you know, slurs or attacks and whatnot. Um, and then I've seen others write uh, and kind of pushing back at that and saying, you know, this, these are you know, human rights issues that the administration's mm -hmm. right to point out. So I was wondering what your take was on that. You know, I think, I mean, to be very transparent, I voted for Biden. So, I mean, I don't, I, I know that I'm a bit biased in that, but I think he was the first who actually in his press conference denounced what's happening. And I know I, people like to point to Trump had a tweet of like, you know, Asian Americans are really hardworking. We shouldn't hurt them. But I think this is the first time I actually heard a leader say, this is wrong. We need to stop and, you know, really highlighted 
very clearly. And I think, I think people will pick apart his administration for every little thing because they want the previous administration. And I, I mean, I'm not well-versed in foreign policy, but I do think that, I think they're trying to right a ship that's already gone off course very far. <laughs> And um, it's going to take a lot to turn the ship back around. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can understand that sentiment. And I also feel like I just want this to stop. And if our current leader actually verbalizes it and something trickles down from federal to state, that would be really helpful. I mean, mm -hmm. I just, I, I feel really downtrodden that we're still here. Mm -hmm. you know so yeah and you mentioned biden's comments and i i think he spoke shortly after the atlanta shootings if i'm not not wrong about mm -hmm. that and so um i think so yeah if if you're okay I just wanted to kind of go to mm -hmm. to that day because your article i think published a few weeks before the shootings in atlanta and you were uh doing a lot of talks and interviews by that point and I, I think you had spoken with some university students that morning and mm -hmm. then the news of the shootings happened later that day so I was wondering if you could just tell me about that day and sure. what what your thought process and emotional process was like that's actually I'm working on a, on a fourth story um that should be out this week about that specific day um I spoke to a Georgia senator um uh, Dr. Michelle Au recently about what we can do to help Georgia. Um, so I did write, a, I wrote about it in this piece that's coming out, but I will say that that day I had already planned to talk to the Korean Student Association at Southern Methodist University in Texas. They had reached out and I said, yeah, of course, you know, let's, they wanted to talk to, about the racism against Asian Americans. And so we did a Q&A for 30 minutes um, over Zoom and they asked really smart questions and they had tough questions that I'm like, I don't have the answer. I can tell you what I've done, but don't, I don't know how to solve this. Um, but it was so helpful because I thought, you know, I said to them when I was your age, I didn't have these conversations. I wasn't thinking about this. I didn't put a name to what's happening. And I thought that was really hopeful. And I said to them, you know, I think you're the change. You're the change that's going to happen. I think young people are really going to take the reins and hopefully change a lot of the systemic racism that's in America. And I left feeling really hopeful because it was just really nice to talk to young people who were interested and active and wanting to learn. And um, I left and I, I picked up my daughters because it was right in the afternoon and I just felt hopeful. You know, I was like, okay, you know, people are, are listening. There's college students, like we're going to do this. And then after the girls went to bed, um, because I'm on stop AAPI's hates like um, press mailing list, I got an email about what happened and I read the headlines and saw some of the photos and that's when I felt like everything that I felt earlier that day was gone I'm like there is no hope and I started crying in my kitchen and Brendan was in the process my husband was making dinner for us and I told him I'm like I don't want to eat I can't eat because I feel sick and 
I felt really scared that night of like how now we're just escalating a really awful situation. So that day was honestly the hardest day that I've had to, in this whole series of reporting. It was feeling like I had this extreme high and this extreme low. And um, I think the next day the press conference from the Atlanta police really, I mean, I felt even worse. I mean, I, I, I knew I needed to see what they were going to say and it, it really didn't help how I felt. And can you say more about the comments that came out at that, that press conference? What, I'll, I'll point to what really bothered me was that he said that the perpetrator was having a bad day and that's why he did what he did. And I thought, I have bad days. I don't go and kill a bunch of people. You know, I, there's other ways to have bad days. We've all had a lot of bad days and those families had the worst day. You know, they've lost their mother, a, a sibling, you know, it just, that felt really awful and no acknowledgement of the victims in it. And the other heart, part that felt really hard was hearing him say, you know, a reporter asked point blank, do you think this is a racially motivated killing shooting and and his response is like we don't think we don't think so he said that it's not racially motivated when we asked him and i'm like well he's not a really reliable source on on what's right and wrong right now and the fact that they were six asian women out of the eight feels really telling to me and it just took a lot of the hope out of the situation for me. I felt like after hearing that press conference, I was like, oh, okay, nothing's gonna happen to this guy. And that just seemed really cynical of me at the time, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't finish listening to it and think, oh, okay, something might, justice might actually prevail. <laughs> just was like, oh, great. No one seems to think that this is racially motivated when clearly it is. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you more about that idea of Atlanta being prosecuted as a hate crime or even a number of the other attacks that we've seen mm -hmm. being prosecuted as hate crimes. And just, you know, in general, we know it's often difficult to get that prosecution because it's hard sometimes to prove intent or motive mm -hmm. unless there's you know, an actual word that's used or, um, you know, a certain kind of symbol and, and what have you that's used. And I think I read the other day that out of all the attacks in New York City, only one has been uh, classified or prosecuted as a hate crime just because mm -hmm. there isn't usually that evidence to bear up to, to be able to, um, to prove that. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. There's obviously been a lot of very necessary discussion and I think conversation mm -hmm. about the racial motivation but um how do we actually is is that is the prosecution as a hate crime mm. necessary or is the conversation around the racialization of some of the crimes almost more important in some ways and just how do we how do we kind of hold that difficulty of prosecuting even when we see the racial nature of some of these attacks you know in before covering it this year, I didn't know how hard it was to prosecute a hate crime. Like I didn't realize how specific it had to be um, until doing this work and realizing a lot of these cases are 
not hate crimes, even though to me, it seems pretty clear. Um, the first case that I read about that I was like, oh, nothing's going to happen, even though this clearly, to me, seems like a hate crime. It was a woman, an uh, elderly woman, I think she was 84, in Bensonhurst. Two guys approached her from behind and um, took a lighter and set her shirt on fire. And then they ran away and she put the fire out quickly, but the back of her shirt was all burned. And the local police were like, well, we can't find them. And you know, they didn't say anything verbally. So we don't know that it was a hate crime. And that feels really hard because I, I think obviously you can't prosecute based on like your heart's intent. Cause, but I also feel like there is really an injustice when it has to be like a verbal slur or like, you know, like some sort of like, I'm going to kill all these people. Like it feels really sad to me that it has to be so and I understand I'm not a lawyer I don't know the legal system in and out but it felt really hard to know that a lot of these crimes are going to go undetected and I think that's why they um it's easy to replicate and I know that sounds cynical but I'm like you know you read about that and you think okay well I can do it and get away with it in a sense and it's I remember when I read that and I thought there are two men walking around who tried to set someone on fire and no, nothing's ever going to happen to them. I run a red light and then I get a ticket. You know, I'm like, why, why, why is that the case? And it feels hard to talk to my children about what's happening because I don't have those answers. I mean, I'm sure they've, they've been really curious and I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. I just know that I, they haven't asked me about hate crimes and I haven't distinguished that, but I feel like it's hard to explain when I feel like I don't understand why they're not listed as hate crimes. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. Just want to ask you a little bit more again about the the aftermath of Atlanta for for people who maybe were not following mm-hmm. your story, other stories about anti Asian hate up to that point that that kind of forced attention to it in a very mm. g- gruesome and, and awful way. And I w- was wondering what I guess what happened with that momentum because as we saw, I think just about a week after that, there was another mass shooting in Boulder in a grocery store, also extremely tragic, 10 people lose their lives. And there has been a shift to me anyway, of the conversation much more now to mass shootings, to mm-hmm. gun violence, to gun safety, all also very important topics mm-hmm. and issues, but definitely a pivot from where the conversation was right after Atlanta. And I was wondering what that was like for you to witness that, or if you saw kind of a similar, just like shift away, or if there's, if there's still, um, if that's still, if it's still resonating beyond the AAPI community of what happened in Atlanta. You know, that's interesting. I, I haven't, to me, I've, I feel like we're still going strong. I'm curious if the media is still going to cover it. Um, something that struck me is that every, um, nonprofit I've spoken to has said to me, everybody who interviews us is Asian American. They're an Asian American journalist. And that has been the case um, 
for most of this year that we are covering it. And I think we've felt like we're, for me, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. And I think this is the first time it's felt a little bit, it's felt larger and I feel like a national discussion, but I have, I'm curious if it will still be people asking us to talk about it. Cause I definitely in the aftermath of that tweet and that story, a lot of people came and asked me to talk. And then I have just said, I can't talk about this all the time. I, I can't spend all of my energy focusing on this, but I do hope that it breaks through. And I, I feel like at least as awful as Atlanta was, it was a big wake up call for people who had either denied it or didn't, weren't aware of it. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm curious what will happen in the, in the months to come, but I do see the Asian American community getting more vocal and, and working together with other communities of color to raise awareness and also to hopefully end this. So um, I, th I think it's still there. I'm just, ho I'm hoping that it won't get lost. Um, and on that note, you, you wrote in your piece too that many in the AAPI community um, take pride sometimes in, in saving face and um, not always reporting and that this often leads to silence, but it sounds like for many, at least maybe that's, that's starting to change. And I was wondering if you could say more about that. I think that more, the more that we have spoken out, the more other people feel comfortable speaking out. It's not easy. It's certainly not easy to speak out. But I've the, what I have seen that's changed is that Stop API Hate, um, when I spoke to them last, had said more seniors are reporting than ever before. And it used to not be the case. And they are self-reporting, um, which means they're getting on the internet, which is traditionally not easy for elderly people or you know having their children do it, but they are reporting. And that's a huge change um, from last year. And the other thing I'll note um, is that when I was thinking about these stories last year, it felt like I, it was like one here, one here, one here. And I feel like now a lot of my Asian American friends are saying, this is what happened to me, either on Facebook or Twitter, being really public about it in a social media platform and more people saying, oh, wow, I didn't know that was happening to you. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that was happening in that city. Um, that feels hopeful. I know that's, to me, you know, when, when one or two people speak up about something that's awful and more people feel they can come forward because that awful thing happened to them, I think that's what's happening now. And I'm, I'm really proud because I don't, I think we've endured a lot of this racism silently. And I think, this particularly for elderly people, I hope is what brings people to change. And the last thing I'll say is that I saw in San Francisco, there was an elderly woman who was attacked and she attacked her attacker back. And um, I, I'm remembering correctly, there was a GoFundMe for her and she gave the money back to the community. And that mm. to me is like, that that's the the grandmas and grandpas I know that they will not take all the money from themselves they will give back and that they they are not to be messed with like my grandma was a little lady I mean she was like 410 she was a powerhouse and I think that's what is coming clear to me is that it's we're speaking up and you're, you're 
we're not just silently being like, okay, well, this is happening. And I, I think the more that we continue to speak up, the better. I read that story also about <laughs> the woman. I think she like grabbed a like plank of wood and like whacked the guy or something. And, and it was, uh, and I, I didn't know what happened with the GoFundMe and the fact that she gave the money back is a really um, just another, uh, another step in what was already a very interesting story. And um, yeah, I think she's probably someone who has a lot of admirers. You mentioned a couple of times about the idea of being in solidarity with other with other communities, with other people of color. And you quoted actress Seema Liu in your piece as saying, mm. it's important to hear our words and not compare our struggles against those of other minority groups. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering how you see the discussion about anti-Asian hate crimes mm-hmm. mapping onto other national conversations of race. Um, you know, in the, in the last year and when we spoke last time, obviously Black Lives Matter was very much um, in the news mm-hmm. and the conversation I think around race was more was more along a, a Black-white kind of dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if that maybe complicated the stories coming out now or if maybe just having more national attention on racism more broadly facilitated some of the conversations around anti-Asian racism that also needed to happen or neither or both and and what your thoughts were on that? You know, I, I have strong feelings that this is a really tenuous conversation that's like, there's so many tough parts of it because in my own research, I have discovered that Asian Americans are I mean, I've known this and have been racist against others and, you know, we're not immune to racism and ignorance, but I think the conversation I would like to have next is to look at our histories and see where we came together and where we hurt each other and how can we heal. Um, I've been in conversation with a black male journalist about how we can have a discussion together about how we can facilitate those kinds of conversations because they're not easy. I can't, I mean, I don't feel comfortable covering. I had, the reason we reached out to each other is that I don't feel comfortable covering this without the other perspective because I'm not a hundred percent knowledgeable of what happened to black Americans. And I think part of it, I mean, he and I were talking about not being taught our history. Like I didn't know about certain Asian American women who were part of the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. or part of, um, I did not know their names until learning about them from other journalists. And I was like, how did I not know who these women are? I've never heard about them. And I have a bunch of like, you know, rebel girl books for my kids. They are not in there. And that's no offense to those books. They're amazing, but I don't know about them. And when I talked to the college students, they didn't know certain parts of our history. And I feel like that's what's missing is that I didn't know, I had mentioned a few things and they were like, no, I've never heard of that. And I'm like, I didn't either. You know, I didn't grow up learning that history. I only am starting to uncover it. So I think there's not an awareness of what came before and where we are now. And I'm, I'm hoping that we can have some tough conversations to heal the spots, um, particularly like I'm, I'm referencing like the LA riots. I, I didn't grow up here, so I didn't know how badly that broke the Korean and black communities against Mm -hmm. each other. And I 
just starting to learn about it. And I think, wow, I don't think anybody's really made an effort to heal that really deep wound on both, both sides. So I'm hopeful that we can start having those conversations next, but I don't, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's not a like, oh, I'm going to cover it in like, you know, one story. I think mm-hmm. that's a big, a big tenuous topic. Yeah, that's really interesting that you've, that you've reached out in our conversation with, um, with I guess, a, a Black journalist about mm-hmm. some of this. And I'll be interested to hear what, what you all are, um, what kind of conversations you start and, and hopefully are able to share with others. Is there anything on which your own thinking has changed, I guess, over the last year with covering these kinds of stories or a bit more broadly, but something that maybe you thought before that you question now or vice versa? I think what really changed for me was that viral tweet. I thought literally no one was listening because I've been talking about this for a year and it really surprised me how many people responded, how many people reached out to me. I got a lot of um, messages on Twitter, on Instagram. I mean, just, I saw it pop up in a bunch of places and I was like, I didn't think anyone cared. Honestly, I, I thought I was just telling other people who knew the situation. That gave me hope that I wasn't alone and we weren't alone. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with my husband about I'm angry that no, it, this is happening and the fact that that got so much wind behind it and so many people talking about it that felt different than that felt really the first time I thought okay maybe we can actually talk about this on a national level um, and the more that we can the better yeah, and you, you again in that tweet had said that, that words have power and you're using every word you've got. And I've heard you uh, say other things similar, like using your megaphone, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. I guess for people who are not avid writers and journalists like yourself, what, what do you recommend to other people to do? I mean, that's always the, mm-hmm. the question people ask, what do I do about this? But um, but what, what do you recommend to people like either resources to follow or things they can do? I know you've, you've written this in some of your pieces, of course, but for people who are listening. Yes. My next piece is actually going to have a list of, um, when I spoke to the Senator, Senator Al, she had some resources for Georgia. I had some resources. Um, what I try to tell people is there's free bystander intervention training, um, that's amazing. My husband signed up, but friends of mine have signed up for it to learn what to do if you see something awful. Um, there, Stop AAPI Hate and Hate is a virus or two organizations I've been tracking. They have a lot of great information, statistics, reports, but also um, resources of, you know, what should you read? How can you be an ally? All that stuff. And they've done so much of the homework um, and are very, very active. So I say, you know, if why reinvent the wheel when they are doing all the great work and just sharing that. The big thing that Senator Ao and I talked about was getting this outside of our community because that's what's gonna need to change is that non-AAPI people discuss this and say, you know, this isn't right. And the next time I see something, I'm gonna step in and say something. I think there's a lot of people, I mean, the pandemic didn't help. So, mm-hmm. you know, people were more isolated, but now, I'm hopeful that 
people will intervene and say, you know, you can't hurt that person. I know that I feel differently. I've, I've thought about what I would do if somebody were to say something to me or I see something like I've, I've prepared myself Mm -hmm. and I'm hopeful that maybe some other people will too. Mm -hmm. Well, Jen, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to make sure we covered or chatted about today? Um, you know, I, I know this is a really heavy topic and I feel like I do want to say that there is joy still in the community. There's amazing people coming together and I have hope and I didn't feel that way last year. So that feels really different. Um, even, even after the shooting and even after some ugly things have come out, I still feel like there's hope and there's good coming well, on that note, then we'll wrap it up where we usually end the podcast. And just to ask if there's any recommendations you have for, for books or other things you've come across. I think last time we shared your excellent newsletter, Joyride, which is a pleasure for me to get in my inbox. And I'd recommend that to others. But um, any other plugs you'd like to make? Two recommendations, actually. Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Um, is a book that I just read and I felt like I hadn't read anything like that before. It's a National Book Award winner. It's written like a screenplay and he's, he tackles the stereotypes attributed to our community and through a male point of view that I just haven't read and I thought was really heartbreaking and funny and accurate and also made me think about what it must be like to be an Asian American male. Um, in America. So that I, I loved. And then I, I loved Minari and I, I, I think it captured a part of our culture that I didn't, I wasn't aware of. And I didn't know that there were Koreans in Arkansas in the eighties. And I, you know, a lot of people say that it's sad and it is sad, but I also feel like there's a lot of hope and sweetness and love and family and, um, perseverance in the odds of like no one wants you to be there um I think the acting is incredible and I just felt like it was one of those movies where I'm like I I am so much richer for having seen great well Jen Shen thank you so much for being on the podcast today really appreciate your thoughts today and uh have really appreciated your journalism and look forward to your next story yes thank you Thank you once again to Jennifer Chen. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you'd like to catch up on some of the articles that we talked about in this show, please see the show notes where I've linked to a number of Jen's pieces. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and recommend it to a friend, subscribe, and keep on listening. Thank you, everyone. Stay well, take care, and tune in again next time.